Hi, everyone. Before we start, we wanted to let you know that just a few days after we recorded this episode, a news story came out about the violent arrest of Athabasca Chippeway and First Nations Chief Alan Adam. In this episode, you'll hear me talk about the Kwakwakiwaka, a different First Nations tribe in British Columbia. This recent news story, along with others now making headlines, shows the systemic violence against many minorities, including First Nations people all across North America. We at Willing and Fable do not speak for First Nations people, nor any minority group using their voice to fight against injustice, but we will always try to use our platform to amplify those voices. We will continue to educate ourselves about the issue of systemic racism in policing. In that vein, if you go to our episode show notes, you can find resources to both learn about and donate to First Nations peoples and their causes. We hope you'll join us in our effort to learn, and we hope you enjoy this episode. possible to be looking forward to something and also simultaneously dread it because yeah. that is how I felt about recording this podcast episode. I completely agree. Okay, so people are going to be hearing this in the future. So I have questions. How are you doing? How is the world? Is the pandemic still going on? <laughs> well, I have a message to future Tracy and future Rowan. Hey, future Tracy and future Rowan. Get it together. Drink some water. Put on some moisturizer. Stop doom scrolling and take a nap and then get back to work. There is only one of those things that um, I don't need to be reminded to do, and it's take a nap. <laughs> oh, oh, that is not me. All right. Oh, no, I love a good nap. Although I don't sleep at night, though, so... I know, because I was up late working on my myth, and you texted me, which is three hours even later, your time. It was 3.30 in the morning, and I thought, at my 3.30 in the morning brain, that you wouldn't notice that I texted you at 3.30 in the morning, and that you'd get it when you woke up, and just be like, oh, what a weird fluke. Her phone sent the message at 3.30 in the morning. Who do you think you're playing with, my dear? No, um, I, it, I, it's my 3.30 in the morning brain that I woke up, saw your text, went, I must deal with this now, answered it, and then got instantly called out for being awake. <laughs> I didn't call you out. I said, hello, insomnia? <laughs> <laughs> Which is recognition. It's not yes. a call out. That's true. You were very, very supportive. Everything is broken. It's okay to be up late at night. We're all learning to be better humans. I do need to drink more water, though. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to quarantine. Also, welcome to the Willing and Fable podcast. I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. Did you know that... I don't know why I'm telling you this. Okay, did you know that I started brainstorming the name for our podcast while I was in the wine aisle... Of our grocery store? I assumed that you just did what I do, which is Google a word you're trying to find and the word pun, and then you find a pun generator. I do love that you do that, but I do not. 
I texted you while I was in the grocery store during quarantine, which turned out to be a very stressful decision because multitasking in that situation was not my best, but I was very excited. And I needed you to help me refine it in real time via text message right now. (laughs) And it worked. Uh, Our podcast covers ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Today, we're going to be talking to you about the third sin in our Seven Deadly Sin series, wrath. Wrath can be defined as strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Usually, it is thought of as a retribution for a crime, often more aggressive than is considered appropriate. Christianity.com goes further, saying... The warnings of wrath in Christianity arise from the consequences of vengeance in human relations. We can become consumed by rage and revenge to the point of acting irrationally and immorally. This is the wickedness of wrath and why it is included as a deadly sin. Can we admit that this episode has been stressing us out a bit? Yes, because it has. Uh, This is by far the hardest episode we've done, and not necessarily because wrath is a particularly difficult sin to find stories about. Definitely no. (laughs) The world is filled with exciting myths and legends and fables about wrath. But also so is our current world right now. Yes. And that's what made this really hard, is every time we tried to look into something to do with wrath, I think all either of us could think about was the Black Lives Matter movement, which is going on right now and something we didn't feel comfortable not addressing. And it made doing research for this really tricky. So for everyone who is in the future listening to this, which is very exciting, I hope that things are going well and that everyone is safe and happy and that we've all gotten some good news lately. Also, drink some water. Moisturize. Take a break. That's a that's a message to future me specifically. Oh, me too. Me too. I um I don't moisturize or drink enough water. So, thank you for that reminder. I really like that image that goes around Instagram occasionally in various forms where it says, you know, unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders, and various other things because every time my jaw is always the most clenched it can possibly be. <laughs> As you said that, I had to just drop my jaw because it was clenched. So, Tracy, tell me what myth you chose. Yeah. Because I don't know. I don't know anything. My story for this week is only sort of related to wrath. For my story this week, I will be telling you about the Kwakwakiwaka of British Columbia. When I thought about wrath, there were so many stories that came to mind. The Iliad, Heracles and his murder of his family, a ton of different stories of Hera or Zeus and the way they punish people, but all of those are from the Greco-Roman culture because that's what I'm the most comfortable with. And since I knew very vaguely the awesome story that Rowan's going to tell, I decided that now was when I wanted to really try to expand my horizons beyond what I already knew and was comfortable with. So I began to research war deities, and I could not figure out what to talk about. That is, until my sister Jamie 
told me about Winna Legalis. And that's how I discovered the Kwakwakiwaka and the story about their war god, Winna Legalis. This is a culture and a people that I knew basically nothing about before I began my research. And while I did my best to be as thorough as possible in my research, I am still learning, and I welcome any insights or new information. The Kwakwakiwaka are peaceful people, but I chose them this week because of their war god, Winilagalis, and kind of as a way to use this as an opportunity to explain their really rich and vibrant culture. So it's not the most relevant to wrath, but it felt more important for me to talk about this than it was to be tied in perfectly to the theme. And since it's our podcast and we can do whatever we want, uh, this is what I'm going to (laughs) do. That is the theme in the office hours of Willing and Fable. (laughs) It is. So Rowan, before we talk about Winna Legalis further, I want to tell you a little bit more about the Kwakwakiwaka people. If you look into these tribes, you might see them listed as Kwakudal. But this name, while often applied to all peoples of this group, is only the name of one band of Kwakwakiwaka. According to a site dedicated to the Kwakwakiwaka ceremony called Potlatch, which I will be discussing later, they say, We are the Kwakwakiwaka, the Kwakwala-speaking people. We are 18 tribes whose territory reaches from northern Vancouver Island, southeast to the middle of the island, and includes smaller islands and inlets of Smith Sound, Queen Charlotte Strait, and Johnstone Strait. That's a quote from Barb Kramer of Namgis Nation. Of Namgis Nation, pardon me. The Kwakwakiwaka of British Columbia, according to their website, have built a rich culture that reflects and acknowledges the riches in their natural environment. They say, Our songs, stories, dances, and ceremonial objects honor the animals, rivers, cedar trees, salmon, and all those things that help to sustain the Kwakwakiwaka physically and spiritually. The First Nations people of the North Pacific Coast region of North America share some cultural similarities that relate to our shared surroundings, the land, sea, climate, and resources. Over time, First Nations groups have changed in various political, social, and economical ways, yet they maintain their traditions. In Canada, First Nations people preferred to be identified by their tribal affiliations. As a group of people, The commonly accepted term in Canada is First Nations peoples. There are 197 distinct First Nations in British Columbia alone. So that's a quote from their website. The other thing I wanted to tell you about the Kwakwakiwaka is that the sea life, particularly the salmon and the oolakin, which is a silvery smelt-like fish, and the cedar tree, are among the resources in the natural environment that have long made and again, this part is a quote, both spiritually and materially rich. For the Kwakwakiwaka, the, quote, good life is not only about plenty of food and resources, but also about how we have used the resources, how we express our connection to living things, and our appreciation of those things that sustain them. Both the cedar and ulikin, especially glitna, 
or grease made from the ulekin fish, are represented in multiple ceremonies held by the Kwakwakiwaka. All of that was some background on the Kwakwakiwaka. And now it's time for the story of Winna Legalis. The underworld is in the north, and it is from there each year that Winna Legalis travels from the underworld to visit the Kwakwakiwaka. He is a tall, thin, black war god with bat-like eyes, and he travels with his famous canoe. In fact, legend says that he is fused with his magical war canoe made of copper in the shape of a living sisutl. This is particularly dangerous, as sisutl is a legendary double-headed serpent with a humanoid face in the center, though sometimes these features may change based on the telling. Regardless, Susudal is known to bring death and property, as its double head can provide both. There is a myth called Squirrel and Thunderbird in which a mortal takes a scale from Susudal and learns of the scale's power. When put on the end of an arrow, it will kill all that is shot by the mortal. It can even turn the mortal's prey into a rock just by him whispering as such to the scale. So powerful is Sisutl that just seeing one can cause sickness or death. This is why Winnilegalis is particularly powerful as his canoe is made of Sisutl. Or perhaps not. Perhaps it's invisible altogether. Perhaps the canoe is only made of wood and copper. Perhaps it can travel underground instead of on water. Different tellings describe his boat in different ways. And maybe, maybe they can all be true at once. Announced by whistles and bull roarers, an ancient instrument used to represent the voice of Winnilegalis, he sails in and stays for the winter as bringer and ruler of Tzika. Tzika is the winter dance ceremony held in his honor. However, as Winnilegalis is known to grant supernatural power to cedar bark, the ceremony can also be called the cedar bark dance. During the Sika, the Hamatsa, one of four secret societies of the Kwakwakiwaka, they dance, and the dance represents the transformation of people into supernatural beings, or as Winnilegalis's granting of great power. During the Tuxwid, or one who traveled ceremony, the initiates would demonstrate supernatural powers granted by Winnilegalis by summoning Dantsiku power boards from the underground and then making them disappear again. This act commemorates Winnilegalis's supernatural canoe, which can travel from the underworld. When not part of the ceremony, Winnilegalis travels the world, making war. But it is during this time of year, when he winters with the Kwakwakiwaka, that he is most celebrated. Since Wrath is what we're talking about this week. I wanted to talk to you about potlatch because I think it's a ceremony that helps the Kwakwakiwaka come together. It's a ceremony they hold to recognize status, pass on a family's rights and privileges, celebrate marriages, the naming of babies, to honor important people who have passed on, celebrate people's relationship to the animal spirits, and give thanks to recognize ties to the ancestors, among other reasons. 
According to their website, dedicated to educating about Kwakwakiwaka and their potlatch ceremony, quote, Long ago, potlatch is stretched out over the winter months, lasting for weeks. They were held in a ceremonial big house, the size of which indicated the host's status in the village. Chiefs with the largest big houses would invite hundreds of guests from many First Nations. Guests would travel to a potlatch by canoe and upon arrival announce themselves and their village by shouting to the host on shore. Giant welcome figures carved out of cedar often stood at the water's edge as hosts sang welcome songs. Sometimes there were so many guests that no room was left on the beaches for all the canoes. End quote. However, over time, the ceremony has become one most often held in honor of the passing of an elder or an important person in the community. But the sentiments are still the same, even though the gifts have changed with the times. Here's an English translation of a quote from Elder Agnes Axu Alfred. Many people believe that a rich and powerful person is someone who has a lot. The people who speak Kwakwala, the Kwakwakiwaka, believe that a rich and powerful person is someone who gives the most away. Since a time beyond memory, the Kwakwakiwaka have been hosting potlatches, and potlatching continues to play a central and unifying role in the community life today. The word potlatch means to give, and it comes from a trade jargon, Chinook, formerly used along the Pacific coast of Canada. Guests witnessing the event are given gifts. The more gifts given, the higher the status achieved by the potlatch host. The potlatch ceremony marks important occasions in the lives of the Kwakwakiwaka. The naming of children, marriage, transferring rights and privileges, and mourning the dead. It is a time for pride. A time for showing the masks and dances owned by the chief or host giving the potlatch. It is a time for joy. When one's heart is glad, he gives away gifts. Our Creator gave it to us to be our way of doing things, to be our way of rejoicing. We who are Kwakwakiwaka, everyone on earth is given something. The potlatch was given to us to be our way of expressing joy. That is a quote from Elder Agnes Axu Alfred. And that, dear listeners, is the story of Winna Legalis and the Kwakwakiwaka. I right away think about the idea that joy is a way of combating wrath. And in this case, pride is not what we talked about in our past episodes of a sin of pride, but rather an appreciation. I don't... I don't know if I can exactly articulate what I'm... I think you framed it really well. It's it's the idea of pride, not being proud, proud or prideful, but just pride in your heritage, a, a pride that comes from joy. And when you're so joyful, how can you be wrathful when you're giving so much to others and that giving brings you joy? How can you feel wrath? So I just thought that was a really, really beautiful ceremony that I wanted to highlight, because even though this episode is about wrath, I think it's important to talk about ways to combat wrath. Am I correct from my hearing of the story that the Winnilegalis 
as a war god is viewed as part of life and part of the experience of the world rather than something that is to be purely kept away. Absolutely. He's welcomed. And what I didn't cover, because I couldn't find enough sources to feel really comfortable verifying this is an official part of Winogala ceremonies, but I did see mentioned a couple times was that he, more than representing anger or wrath, represented strength. And so some of the warriors would do dances to him and then perform certain ceremonies like piercing their thighs and then being hung to see how strong they were and how much they could withstand and prove their strength. And then they would come back stronger to represent the gift of supernatural power that Winilagalis would give them. But he's not something to be feared as much as it seems he's someone to be respected. In a lot of my beginning research for this episode, I found that war gods or deities of violence or anger in many of the cultures that I briefly explored are very much considered a part of the circle of life rather than something to be spurned away. And I really have been ruminating on that as I worked my way through writing my part of this episode. So it was nice to hear in your story because I I don't get to look at your story before we start. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I really want to hear your story because I think we'll have a lot more to talk about when we hear a story I'm assuming is going to be very different from the one that I told. Yes, and you were being very nice to me um, when you said you only vaguely knew what I was doing because it went down thusly. Tracy texted me a couple of the options she was considering researching for this episode, which is something we do so that we don't both cover the same story somehow. I should add, though, the Kwakwakiwaka and Winnilegalis was not on that list. No, you found it later. Uh, But in your initial text, you did include the Furies. And I, in calling you kind of quietly mentioned that I had been also considering the Furies, and you were very (laughs) gracious and let me have it, which more than makes up for when I let you take- I was going to say, I was very, you're you're being nice calling me gracious. I was more than happy to let you have it, but you also did give me Atlantis very generously. So I think it's just, um, we love and respect each other and want each other to be happy. But also, here's the thing. The second you said you (laughs) wanted the Furies, like a child on the playground, I wanted it more. (laughs) So I was very glad that you did that. You were a god among men. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I disagree, but I'm very... I'll take the compliment. And I actually did kind of the opposite of you. I chose the Furies because it was a story that I am a little bit more familiar with. I learned quite a lot this week, but... I wanted to go back to my myth study roots a little bit and see what I could learn. So I am covering the Furies. And I'm going to begin with a quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica, baby. Furies, Greek Arrhenius, also called Evmenides in Greco-Roman mythology, the thonic goddesses of vengeance. They were probably personified curses, but possibly they were originally conceived 
of as ghosts of the murdered. According to the Greek poet Hesiod, they were the daughters of Gaia and sprang from the blood of her mutilated spouse Uranus. In the plays of Aeschylus, they were the daughters of Nyx. In those of Sophocles, they were the daughters of darkness and of Gaia. Euripides was the first to speak of them as three in number. Later writers named them Electo, or unceasing in anger, Tisiphone, avenger of murder, and Megara, jealous. They lived in the underworld and ascended to earth to pursue the wicked. Being deities of the underworld, they were often identified with spirits of the fertility of the earth because the Greeks feared to utter the dreaded name Arrhenius. The goddesses were often addressed by euphemistic names, such as Evmenides, kindly, Incision, or Semnani, august, in Athens. End quote. That was a big info dump. But I hope that motivated you, because as a frequently angry ghost, I have never been more excited. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So to double back, phonic, which is an exciting word from my definition above, means that something is of or relating to Earth, particularly the underworld. In Greek mythology, that includes Hades and Persephone, the rulers of the underworld, and even Zeus, who, though being the god of the sky, was still revealed as a thonic god in relation to his earthly associations. This is an interesting detail, because oftentimes people completely disassociate the underworld with Earth, probably in reference to the life-death antithesis, but we know that death is a part of the cycle of life, which brings us back to the unification of these ideas. It is also worth noting that thonic figures are often associated with snakes. Sometimes, the Furies are depicted with snakes as hair or with serpents writhing around them. Once there were many Furies, now it is generally taken that there are only three. Depictions of these three women included describing them as hags with bat wings, blood dripping from their eyes, wearing black and carrying whips. They seem to be just as often described as beautiful women tormenting men in various states of undress. So pick your poison, I suppose. I choose bat wings. I choose various states of undress. (laughs) So pick your poison is exactly what we're going to do today. The Arrhenius might go all the way back to prehistoric Greece, as the word appears in Linear B. That's the syllabic script that was used for writing in Mycenaean Greek, the earliest attested form of Greek. Yay, Linear B. It's something Rowan and I talked about off podcast. Yes, we've talked about it quite a bit. So you guys heard me mention, but tellings of them existed in works by Hesiod, Homer, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. They existed in Roman and Etruscan art. They have been defined and redefined and defined again by many, many great men who existed a long time ago. So today I present for all of you my favorite bits and bobs as told to you by a woman who exists today. (laughs) Gather close now. Tuck in tight, for I have a story of the truth of wrongdoing. What will happen to you, boy, if you stray from the world of rightness and good 
into the darkness of hate. Some say they are born in darkness, come from the primordial goddess Nyx herself, or from a union of earth and sky. Daughters of the rulers of the underworld, Hades and Persephone whom they serve, or even come from the blood which dripped from Uranus's genitalia onto Gaia after his own son, the titan Kronos, castrated him. No matter whom you credit, they are curses come to life to punish the wicked. These creatures of darkness, women, beautiful and supple, virginal and fair, yet wreathed in serpents with hair of snakes. The wings of bats carry them around and around you, striking from all sides with their serpentine whips. They will drive you to madness just by being near, and you will cry tears of blood so thick and sweet that you will imagine they bleed from their own eyes for want of your punishment. And perhaps... When you are beaten and bare, when they grow weary of attending to your salvation, you will cry hag and curse their flesh to wrinkling, if you can. Now, you ought to be afraid, truly, because I am going to say their names, a feat many are scared even to do. Many will call them kindly, like a wishful title when referring to them, or august to keep back their attention and wrath. But now I say you should fear. Electo, punisher of mortal crimes. Megara, punisher of infidelity, the oathbreakers and thieves. And Tysiphony, punisher of murderers. These women of the earth and air see you now, for I have invoked their very names, and let us hope they find no fault in you. You will remember Orestes. He was son of Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, and his wife Clytemnestra. Orestes was only a boy, not unlike you, when his mother's lover murdered his father. And though he was smuggled to safety by a nurse, Orestes returned, full-grown, to murder his mother. You see, among the crimes the Arrhenius punish, the one which calls forth their most heinous retribution is that of parent against child, or in this case, child against parent. You will recall their birth from Uranus, after all. The three winged women tormented Orestes for his matricide, drove him to a madness he could not escape. Through Orestes' trial at Athens, attended by the gods Apollo and Athena themselves, some say the wretched women were placated. Athena delivered an acquittal for Orestes after all, but some say they were not and choose to continue their cursing of the murder Orestes. And anyway, he died in his old age from a snake bite. So, who can know, really? Tormenting one mortal at a time isn't really enough. Yes, they are older than even the oldest god you can name 
and time can stretch and shrink for an immortal being in a myriad of ways. Bestowing illness upon a murderer is surely a fun pastime, but what of the nation that harbors him? Those that see evil and do nothing, banding together in willing ignorance and doubling down on atrocity for fear of failure. Upon them, these furious divines bestow hunger, a famine stretching out for generations to come. They lay waste with disease and insanity which creeps unseen, manifests in violence, and cannot be fought but for recognition of oneself. <laughs> I see you are afraid. I can hear it in your very breath. What have you seen and said nothing about? Who, brave warrior, hero of men, have you left unprotected? You are lucky. The wrath of Tisiphone, Electo, and Megara might be placated with a ritual purification or the completion of some difficult task, if you can get them to give you one. Should you pass away, fall into death still awash in your crimes, fear not the absence of your fair-winged friends. The Arrhenius serve the rulers of the underworld, Persephone and Hades, by overseeing the torture of criminals assigned to the Dungeon of the Damned. They will find you wherever you go on these many, many planes. <laughs> I've gone too far and left you scared. Well, I'll tell you this, sir, back in Athens, at the trial of Orestes, there is another telling of the end which I left out. With all jury members of the great city tied in their verdict for the murderer Orestes, Athena stepped in to deliver their final decision. Despite all the Furies' work in court as Orestes' accusers, Athena acquitted the man who murdered his mother. But the ancient Arrhenius would not have it and threatened to poison the surrounding countryside to punish all Athenians. But Athena, protecting the very city which bore her name, came forth with an offer. She persuaded them to break the cycle of vengeance blood for blood upon which they were born. Instead, she convinced them to become stewards of justice to join her in protecting this great city. Meanwhile, the clever goddess reminded the ancient trio that she possessed the key to the hideaway in which Zeus kept his thunderbolts, perhaps as temptation perhaps threat to the older women. But Athena's gamble worked. The divine trio of deities took up a new home in Athens, now going by the name the Venerable Ones to ensure the city's prosperity. So there is a hope, a version of the telling in which a young goddess of war might save you from older goddesses of wrath. You might even one day when the world has grown to call you old, look back and offer thanks to the wrathful three for lessons you've been taught. 
This may appease their continuance, but you never know. I'm not sure. There are so many stories, it can be hard to predict what might come of them. But hear this, boy. I've spoke their names into your unwilling ears. These three women of wrathful work see you, and there is no mortal flaw that could keep them away. All right. <laughs> that was such a good telling. I love the way that you always frame stories in your own voice, and I can tell that this this voice came from a place of frustration and and anger in the telling in a way of wanting to say you need to reflect you need to look at yourself you need to be better you need to always be better yeah i uh if we lived in a world of mythology and fairy tales i would like very much for the furies to exist at this particular moment i agree but <laughs> that is not our reality and i really like these three women in story because they are, to my knowledge, just as often depicted as beautiful women tormenting a man as they are horrible creatures inflicting pain upon swaths of people. I love to imagine them as both. I mean, why can't they be both? They are very much both. And I love each version equally. Yeah, there's there's no reason why these deities can't be both. There's no reason why real women can't be both. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I also, listen, I, I know I've covered Greco-Roman myths a fair amount, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to circle back to my previous myth of Athena and say, here she is again defending the man and putting the women in a place <laughs> again it's that woman operating in a man's space and and she wanted to protect her city I, I would say you could you could argue the extreme level of vengeance they wanted to dole out might have been if not uncalled for at least unwanted by athena so whether it was to defend a man or act in her own best interests you know i think could be argued and they could be two different things. One could be defending a man and the other one could be in her own best interest. I think, again, this is a situation of both. They were older deities than she was. Very powerful. They outnumbered her. And she also fought hard for Athens and was its protector god and was the goddess of justice. So both. I, I want to point out two things that I read but did not include in my telling. One, and these are some of my favorite details, in some versions of the story, to pacify the Arrhenius, Athena gives them a cult. And the cult goes by many of the euphemistic names for the Furies. Uh, sometimes they are called the kindly ones. And you can read about cults for different deities all throughout Grecian history, but I particularly love that idea in this story. I love that idea in this story. I'm really curious as to why they decided to go so far as to call them the kindly ones. In all of my reading, it was specifically to keep their wrath away. 
they didn't want to refer to them by name because it meant that they you'd be calling their attention. And I think that it would it was a wish it was wishful thinking. You know, if I call you kindly, maybe you'll be a bit nicer to me when you dismember me or <laughs> drive me nuts. The other thing, when Athena sort of converts them to justice rather than vengeance, she stipulates that war is not a case of vengeance because war is fought for glory. <laughs> Okay. And I think that that is just so interesting. Athena, goddess of war, has decided that her violence is more worthy. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, it's if you're killing someone, you're killing them. But hers is for fame and glory, and theirs is for vengeance. You can't kill people because they've killed someone, but you can definitely kill people because you want to be famous. Right? I mean, that's what it is. It's you can't kill someone because they're a bad person. You can just kill someone because they are a soldier. Yeah. Um, okay, final other detail that I'm excited about that I read in a couple places. Quote from Wikipedia. Whilst the Arrhenius were usually described as three maiden goddesses, the Arrhenius Telphosia was usually a byname for the wrathful goddess Demeter. Oh. This is important because, quote, though Demeter is often described simply as the goddess of the harvest, she presided also over the sacred law and the cycle of life and death. And nowadays, her existence, as well as Persephone's, is very often taken out of that context. Mm -hmm. And in fact... Demeter and Persephone's existence are said to predate the Olympian pantheon, taking us back again to the Mycenaean period. Right. I think that's something that isn't taught as much in school as I personally would like. The the understanding of the Minoan and Mycenaean Greek culture and their pantheon that existed before the quote-unquote modern Hellenistic, Hellenist, Greek that we know today, some of these gods are so much older and have different versions than the ones we know today. I think we can both agree that this has been a period of learning that our public school education definitely was picking and choosing the stories it wanted to tell. Definitely. So circling back, I covered a myth in which the wrathful gods were wrathful and violent on purpose, knowing what they were doing and reveling in it in many cases. Was that also the case for the Winnilegalis? I couldn't find a lot of detail at all about Winnilegalis, but I think he would line up more with Athena than the, how do you say it again? I've always said, I've always just read the word as Arenes, which isn't right. Arenes? Arenes. Listen, I, I Googled so many pronunciations for this episode, and there were about five for every <laughs> single word. And I picked the ones that had the most source, the most number of sources to back them up. Pardon me. So, you know, this is a hopeful pronunciation of this word. <laughs> Doing this podcast more than anything else has made me realize how many words out there I've read hundreds of times and never said out loud and don't know how to pronounce. 
Oh, yes, there are regular words that fall into that category. And by regular, I mean words that I read regularly right. in in fiction and nonfiction rather than words specific to any story or pantheon. Oh, my good golly gosh. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as dumb as trying to say a word that you know. You know what it means. And your mouth just doesn't form it or your brain doesn't know how to how to actually say it. My favorite thing that I do now in the wee hours of the morn is Google 50 cent words that I know I've used in the past. I've said them before, but only now when I am writing a podcast episode do I doubt its definition. I do that all the time. I completely agree. So I'm sorry. I'm circling and circling and sidetracking us simultaneously. I apologize. <laughs> Don't apologize. That was my sidetrack. You asked about Winna Legalis, and, and my answer based on my very limited knowledge and continual learning is that he seems to be someone who loves fighting and strength and war, but not vengeance. Hmm. Okay. Well, we accidentally picked some nice comparing and contrasting stories. We did. I'm so glad that I didn't look up your story once I knew what it was because this is my first time hearing about it at all and I I want to go back to that story world that you told me because it sounds in this telling like a really helpful way to use joy and I I could use a little bit of that now <laughs> I agree I loved researching the Kwakwakiwaka and Winna Legalis. I also think it was really cool to learn more about the Sisutl, which is the two-headed serpent with the face of a man in the center. That creature could be more closely related to your story, but again, it's not really one for vengeance as much as it's just this creature of death and, well, death and prosperity. We have serpent imagery all over the place. Adam and Eve. The Greeks every which way. <laughs> Serpents yeah. are a huge part of of the human consciousness, I think. Right. Well, I think it's a combination of... I, I'm of two minds. So one, I think we like to depict things that scare us and serpents and being afraid of snakes is a very common fear. I think the other side of it is a, a big thing that new cultures will do is take important symbolism from an old culture and make it evil. So there are hmm. some theories that that's what happened with the snake in the Garden of Eden. Many, many pagan cultures, or at least what were deemed pagan cultures, they really venerated snakes. And so in order to diminish that culture or that religion, what you can do is turn that great thing into something evil. I wish I knew the word for this, but I'm also thinking of, you know how in charities to save animals, they always show pictures of tigers and bears and animals that people think are cute. I read uh, an article about how humans naturally identify more with creatures they can project human expression onto, which means that the face shape and the layout of an animal helps humans feel closer to it and not to be incredibly basic about it but snakes 
look nothing like people. They're intimidating. They move in a way that is almost alien to the way that we move, and yet they have survived the test of time as powerful predators in many cases. As scared as I am of almost everything in the world, I love snakes. I think they have the cutest little faces, just like bats. I think bats have the cutest little faces. Sky puppies. I, they're sky puppies, and I think snakes are, um, you know, I'll plug Snake Discovery on YouTube. Um, it is a, an educational snake channel. It's the most adorable couple who live in Wisconsin who breed snakes, and it's really made me fall in love with snakes. They're really cute creatures. We should respect them more. Yeah, I used to have snakes growing up, and you were never scared of them. No, again, of all the things I'm terrified of in this world, snakes have I've always been okay with. I wouldn't love one being in my house, but I'd, I would deal with it, and I would let it live because you should not kill snakes. We got so many snakes in my house growing up. Little, little sweet snake babies, ring necks. You have to let them go in the garden because they come into the basement because it's safe and happy and, you know. All right, Tracy? Yes? Before we, we do our closing, I think that we need to explain why the heck we close this way again, because I I think some people are going to skip our prequel episode, which is totally fine. But we do need to explain why we are such geese about the end. Go for it. All right. So mm, a few years ago, when I was getting out of a long-term relationship, my lovely father was concerned that I would be lonely. And Amazon Echoes had just came out, and so he mailed me one so that I wouldn't be lonely in my apartment, which is adorable it's so and wholesome sweet. and also somehow a bit dystopian, and I love it. It's such a thing a dad would do. My dad would do the same thing. It is a very uh, our dad type of thing. So whenever I was sat, and still to this day, if I am down, I say, Echo, tell me something good. And then she spouts out quirky little facts. And so and so Rowan started doing that with not just me, but everyone in her life. And um, <laughs> it's such a good icebreaker if you're at a party or in an, a meeting where you need to have an icebreaker. Just ask everyone to tell you something good. Tracy. Yes. Tell me something good. I've thought a lot about my something good this week because I've had a fairly uneventful week. Originally, my something good was that I was uh, getting my hair done because my stylist is amazing and was willing to go meet up with myself and my mom and my sister and do our hair. But then there was a mishap in the shipping of the, the hair color. And so that has to be delayed. Then it was going to be that I was continuing defense. Uh, that got delayed because poor, poor Tim is not feeling well. Um, he'll be fine, but... That leaves me with, what did I do this week? What made me happy this week? And the answer is two things. One, I got to see both of my parents. My dad, as I I think I mentioned before, has been doing COVID research in Boston. But he came back to visit, and so I got to see him and my mom. And in true dad fashion, he came to see my townhouse, because he hadn't seen it since I moved in, Immediately noticed. He hadn't seen it since he moved in? No, not everything. He helped me move in, and then COVID started, and he immediately went off to Boston and hadn't been able to see it. So he came to see it, immediately noticed one of my blinds was broken in my living room, spent the rest of the time fixing it, couldn't fix it, took me to get new blinds, and then I bought a bunch of plants. 
So that was one. I have a bunch of little plants. I, I built a little plant stand for them today on my, my deck. The other one um, is that since we went live, just all the kindness and joy we've gotten. And um, I went and visited my mom when I was supposed to get my hair done, but instead I just went and saw her. And it was just a rough day. And I got to her house and she was making salsa, which I love. And she had homemade iced tea, which I love. And she just kept saying great things about the podcast and about Rowan and about me. And um, we sat on the deck and just sat in the sunshine. And, and she kept saying that she was so um, appreciative that my Something Good in the first two episodes was about her. She said it made her feel so special. So I just, hmm. I don't know. My Something Good this week is that I am very, very lucky and grateful to have two loving wonderful parents who have always supported me and made me feel like I can do anything and they just make my soul happy when I get to see them. So that's mine. Rowan, Hmm. tell me something good. Hmm. I too am going to have a two-part something good because it's our podcast and we can do what we want. Yes, we can. My first something good is actually learning about the Furies. And okay, bear with me on this one. I went to the park for a social distancing uh, three-person work slash nice-to-see-human-faces thing, which is great. We were all really far apart, which made it kind of difficult. But uh, two of the men that I was with kept, when they would explain things that I was passionate about, they would say, you know, Rowan was yelling at me. Oh, my God. Which made my blood boil because excitedly or firmly or just passionately saying something that you believe is not the same as yelling. And, oh boy, that is a whole level of sexism that we could break down in many ways. But then I got to research about the Furies, who (laughs) were rage-filled women, and I felt so validated and hope that... Maybe someone else feels that way about the Furies. And then my follow-up something good is on a totally opposite corner of the spectrum. Today, mere moments before we started recording, I got a delivery of these two sweet little plant babies from Greenhouse Botanicals. Pardon me. I got a delivery from Green Room Botanicals in Los Angeles, and they're social distancing, delivering plants to people's doors. And they're such healthy, beautiful little greens. And this week, they donated all the money to uh, various causes that you could select from for the Black Lives Matter movement. And they did so much good. And I keep seeing all these posts of people having these beautiful wonderful gorgeous plants and they make me so happy having them in my room and I hope that I can keep them alive (laughs) (laughs) I find google helps just google the type of plant and any issues you have but that is so sweet I I love that I want to get plant babies delivered to me that also contributes to a good cause yeah if anybody is in LA I cannot say enough good things about green room botanicals they help me pick good plants that I can take care of and they delivered them in the most protected wonderful way for the plants and also for everyone not getting coronavirus and they did so much good this week and people doing good in that way 
is just such a little slice of using joy to combat awfulness. Joy can combat wrath. We did the thing. We did the thing. All right, everyone. I think that's going to do it for our wrath episode. If you like what we do, please remember that stories grow in the telling. So tell a friend or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.